You want to just leave it there, or do you want to take it? Leave it there. So 1 Corinthians 12, and uh, we do have a little PowerPoint that hopefully will help us follow this morning. want to uh, review just briefly um, what we have seen from the scriptures so far. And uh, let's see here, I'm going to go back here and do this again. So that we can, uh, there we go, okay. Let's just look up to the Lord before we look into the scriptures together, okay? Lord God, you have given us this book. It is written by your precious Holy Spirit. And he has opened our eyes to see the glory and the beauty of Christ. And we have found life in him. And his work to give us life is ongoing. It is these words that Christ has spoken to us. They are spirit and they are life. It is through them that our souls are nourished. For man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we pray for the ministry of your spirit to us, that as we look at these words together, that they might become more than simply words on a page from an ancient document, but that in them we might see Jesus Christ and his work. I pray, Father, that you would do your good work in us this morning through this passage of Scripture. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. We are going to just review briefly because we have a number of visitors here this morning, what we've looked at so far. We began a number of weeks ago looking at God, who is the eternal creator of this world. It exists by his will. He is therefore worthy of all of our praise and worship. He is the sovereign creator of this world. He reigns over all things. He is the one who directs every circumstance in this world. And he is a benevolent sovereign. He is not a dictator. He is good. He orders this world in goodness. And yet he is just. How does a God who is good and just relate to a world of sinners like us? If he were good, what would his disposition towards us be? If he were just, could he maintain that disposition? And so we saw in Exodus 34 that God is not only a God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. He is also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. And so that creates tension between God and this world. How does a good God who is just interact with a world like ours? It's full of sinners. And the answer to that is that God's purpose is to reclaim this world that has been separated from him by sin. His purpose is to reclaim this world, to subdue our rebellion against him, and to reconcile man to himself for the sake of his own glory. And how will he do that? God is at work to accomplish this in Jesus Christ. God was in Christ when Christ descended into this world. And man partakes of salvation by being united to Jesus Christ. And in Christ, God and man are reconciled, Paul teaches us. In Christ, God has provided a great salvation for us. And the heart of that is our being reconciled, put right with God. And we partake of this salvation when we are united 
to Jesus Christ. How are we united to him? The scripture gives us two means. The first is we're united to him by the work of Jesus Christ to baptize us in his Holy Spirit. We see this in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist prophesies, there's one coming after me. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And you can think of a cup that is immersed in water. And as it is drawn out now, it is full of the Holy Spirit. This is Christ's work. And we are united to him by faith. Spirit baptism is Christ's work to plunge us into the Spirit. We've seen so that he indwells us and we possess him. And the Spirit is one. And so we have been united together into one body, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, by the work of Jesus Christ and his Spirit. We have seen that this term, the body of Christ, is used synonymously throughout the New Testament for the word church. We've seen that there are two aspects of the church. This is from a couple of weeks ago, the universal church, which is that currently invisible but ever-growing body of all those united to Jesus Christ as head through the Spirit. But this church has never yet gathered. It is not yet an ecclesia. It is not yet a gathering. It will gather one day around the throne of God. But in the meantime, we find in the New Testament that the predominant usage is of this word church refers to the local church. Manifestations of this universal body in various locations. And there are, at my count, at least 48 identifiable local churches in the New Testament. So what are local churches? That's what we are trying to figure out. What is a local church? A local church, first of all, is a gathering of saints who gather regularly on what day of the week? The Lord's Day on Sunday, because that is the day of Christ's resurrection. We started off by asking the question, what is a church? Five Christians who bump into each other in town, is that a church? When do those Christians become a church? And the answer is, first of all, when they begin to gather regularly on the Lord's Day. But secondly, we noticed last week that local churches are gatherings of saints who gather definably. There is a line that you can draw around those saints and say, these are the ones who gather here. In other words, in the New Testament, it is clear that local churches have identifiable members. There is a membership that is clear in the New Testament. And it is that line then that defines the extent of of our responsibility towards one another as believers. Christian to Christian, Christians to pastors, pastors to Christians. And we are obedient to Jesus Christ within those boundaries as we obey those commands. To We fulfill them towards those that the Spirit has united us with uh, in a local church. Now, the question that we want to start to work on this morning is, why? Why does the Spirit gather Christians together into local churches? What are these things local churches? Why do they exist? Why the local church? Why do, they get, why do Christians gather regularly? Why do they gather definably? Why do local churches exist? What is membership in the, why is membership in the universal church not enough? Why is it not sufficient merely to be an invisible Christian? who has a relationship with God, why is it that the New Testament puts such heavy emphasis on our gathering together with other saints? Why did God set it up this way? And 1 Corinthians 12 will give us one of about three or four answers to that that the New Testament gives us. So we will be in this passage for all of our time together this morning. We will get to the primary text in this chapter that we're going to address here in a little bit. But first of all, 
We need to understand what Paul's saying through this whole chapter if we're going to understand the little bit that we're going to look at this morning. Okay? So we'll start off by just a brief overview of the entire chapter and what Paul is saying to the Corinthians in this chapter. Okay? And he begins in verse 1 by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts. Paul is answering questions here in this chapter that they've written to him about. If you just flip back about two pages to chapter 7, verse 1, you can see this. Chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, apparently they had written to him with some questions. In chapter 7, he addresses a question about marriage. If you look at chapter 7, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, apparently they'd written him a question about betrothal. And so Paul gives an answer to that. If you look at chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, and Paul gives an answer to that, because apparently they had written to him about that question as well. In chapter 10, verse 1, now they have a question about what our translation says is spiritual gifts. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, not 10, verse 1. The question under discussion here in this chapter pertains to spiritual gifts. And yet, the word gifts is not actually in the underlying Greek text. And that's why the King James Version puts it in italics. You can see that. And that's why the ESV has a note about it. The word gifts is not in the actual underlying Greek text. And so the chapter, I don't think, is primarily about spiritual gifts. What is the chapter about? Paul does speak to us about spiritual gifts here in this chapter. And there are several listings of them. But Paul has other, u- other words that he could use if he wants to talk to us about what we refer to generally as spiritual gifts. And he doesn't use that word here in chapter 12, verse 1. Paul does refer to these gifts throughout the chapter, but the question under discussion here is deeper than that. Let me show you what Paul's answer is to their question. And as we look at the answer to the question, I think we'll understand what the question was. And that will give us a foundation to stand on in thinking about what this might mean for us. So let's look, first of all, at the fact in verse 1 that while the word gifts may not be there in the original text, the word spiritual is. That much is clear. And the question question that they have put to him then pertains to matters of spirituality. Now, anytime you see the word spiritual in your Bible... You don't want to think about something that you just can't get your hands on. You know, it's it's not physical, it's, it's spiritual. And you don't want to think primarily about things that are just generally religious in nature. Anytime you see the word spiritual in your Bible, you want to think about things that are related to God's Holy Spirit. They are spiritual in that sense. And this is exactly what we see in this chapter. In chapter 12, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit 12 times. They have a question about spirituality, and he refers to the Holy Spirit 12 times. They go together. What was their question about the Spirit of God and spiritual matters or spirituality? Look with me at chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll read the first three verses. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Here, Paul's contrasting two different ways of life. 
In verse 2, he speaks of when they were pagans. And in verse 3, he speaks of them now as speaking in the Spirit. Pagans versus being in the Spirit. Those are the two ways of life that he contrasts. Previously, they were pagans, or I guess for you, it's previously they were pagans. And now they exist in the Spirit. In In that era of life when they were pagans, they were, Paul says, led astray to mute idols. Paul says here that no matter how they were led, this was always their destination. Think of all the pagans out there in the world. Influences, religious, spiritual influences. What is the destination of all of those influences? What is everything pushing them towards out there in the world? It is pushing them all towards idolatry. That idolatry could have taken the shape of physical statues and Figures that perhaps they bow down to, or it may have taken the shape of that figure that looks back at them from the mirror. But in every case, no matter what influences or inclinations they followed, the destination was always idolatry. And that's, the, that's what Paul's saying at the end of verse 2. You were led astray to mute idols however you were led, no matter what influence it was in your life. The end goal was always idolatry. They were perpetually oriented towards idols as pagans. And that's what we have seen throughout all of human history. There have been no pagans in the history of the world who have arrived at the truth and the true worship of God on their own. No matter what influence it is, nothing directs them towards God. Every influence leads them, every influence leads them astray. And this is Paul's point then in verse 2. When they were pagans, however they were led, idolatry was the destination. And Paul stands upon that foundation now in verse 3 with the word therefore. In view of that fact that every influence led pagans to idolatry, Paul stands upon that foundation now to make a very important point in verse 3. He says, I do not want you to be I I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I want you to know that no one calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If there's no pagan who arrives at the worship of the true God, regardless of whatever influence it was that propelled him forward, if if no influence in this world propels men towards the worship of the true God, then every influence in the history of the world has always led men astray. So how do some men then arrive at the worship of the true God? What influence pushes them in that direction? And Paul's answer is, it's only the Spirit. Only the Spirit of God, that is the only influence that ever brings a man to confess Jesus as Lord. There are many passages in the New Testament that teach us this. But essentially what we are looking at here is that the faith that men and women express in Jesus Christ as Lord, their submission to him, this is the work of God's Holy Spirit in them. He is the one who instills in them the faith that propels them towards Jesus Christ and submission to him. The Spirit of God reorients certain individuals towards Jesus as Lord. And his work then is the only influence 
that will bring a man to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But notice what Paul says in verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that on the one hand, no one speaking in the Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. The Spirit never leads them to that goal. Instead, everyone who speaks in the Spirit arrives at this goal, that Jesus is Lord. In other words, the Spirit infallibly leads men to confess Jesus as Lord. He never works, and then the end result of that is someone repudiates Christ. No, Jesus is a curse. But anywhere that he works, no one is able to arrive at this destination, Jesus is Lord, unless the Spirit compels him and pushes him in that direction. And this is what Paul has to teach us here, that if you want to know where the Holy Spirit is at work, how would you know? How would you know a person who is under the influence of the Spirit of God? He is at work in that life. How would you know? The answer that Paul gives us is, what does that person say about Jesus Christ? Does he call him Lord? Because the Spirit works infallibly to bring every person under his influence to that point. If they do not arrive at that point, they are not under his influence. But if they do... That man is under the influence of the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the one who brings men to that belief and confession. And so how we must pray for the Holy Spirit's work in our ministries of evangelism. Jesus says the Spirit is coming to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And if he does not do that work, the world remains unconvinced. How we must pray for the work of the Spirit of God. So this fact then, that the Spirit of God is the one who brings men to confess Jesus as Lord, this fact brings us to the point then that Paul is making in these verses, these first three verses. If the Spirit is the infallibly effective turning point that brings pagans to confess Jesus as Lord, if it is the Spirit of God who infallibly brings them to that point, then that confession is the evidence of the Spirit's work. They have a question about spirituality. Where is the Spirit of God at work? This is where he's at work. This is how you know. This is who is a spiritual man. It is one who under the Spirit's influence confesses Jesus as Lord. And this is Paul's point in these first verses. The infallible mark of authentic spirituality is... A man who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, and not just a verbal recitation of the words. This is a man who commits himself in personal allegiance to Jesus Christ as the Lord of heaven and earth. Paul's next section, and he will go through this section quickly. Paul's next section in verses 4 through 11 calls our attention to the variety of gifts in the body of Christ. So look at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And look with me at verse 11. All these, all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the word apportions in verse 11 is actually the same word as varieties in verse 4. So look at verse 4. Varieties of gifts same spirit. Verse 11, empowered by the same spirit who gives varieties of gifts. 
So there you've got the opening and the closing of that section. And the theme of that section is many gifts, variety of gifts, same spirit behind them all. Spirit is the one who gives the gift of apostle, gift of prophecy, gift of ministry, gift of helps, gift of mercy. The spirit of God is behind them all, is Paul's point in verses 4 through 11. And they are distributed at the end of verse 11, last three words, as he wills. Why do certain people possess one gift but not another? Spirit of God. Why do some people possess the gift of prophet but not the gift of apostle? Choice of the Spirit of God. That's Paul's point. But nevertheless, apostle and prophet, same spirit behind them all, giving those gifts. The Corinthians are asking him, verse 1, about matters of spirituality. And Paul says that every gift is a manifestation of the same spirit. So if we connect verses 4 through 11 now back to verses 1 through 3, I think we start to get a pretty good idea of what Paul's point is and what the question was that they asked. It seems that the Corinthians were considering a particular gift to be the authentic mark of spirituality. Paul, who's a spiritual person? They apparently had one gift in focus. And if we read chapter 14, we find out that that was the gift of tongues. How do you know who's a spiritual person? Has he spoken in tongues? That was the Corinthian mindset. And Paul comes along and he turns that logic on its head. He says, no, no, no. The Spirit gives a variety of gifts. If you've spoken in tongues, will of the Spirit of God. If you have not spoken in tongues, but you have the gift of prophet, will of the Spirit of God. How do you know where the Spirit's at work? Not in any single gift, but in the variety of gifts. And in view of verses 1 through 3, what is the infallible test then? Is it speaking in tongues? Is that how you know someone who's truly spiritual? Somebody who's under the influence of the Spirit of God? Paul's answer is no. The infallible test is his response to Jesus Christ. Does he call Jesus Christ Lord? In other words, those who have never spoken in tongues are not any less under the influence of God's Spirit than any other believer because the Spirit distributes the gifts as he will. It is the confession that Jesus is Lord, not speaking in tongues, not the gift of apostle, not any individual gift that marks one out as a spiritual person. The Corinthians think of speaking in tongues as the quintessential mark And why was that so important to them? Why were they so concerned to know who was a spiritual person? Who possessed the Spirit? Who was under the influence of the Spirit? Why was that such a critical question for them? And that's what the next couple of verses show us. And we've already seen these verses before. We've looked at them a couple weeks ago. Look with me at verse 12. Just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Who has the spirit has a lot to say about who's part of the body. So how do you know who's got the spirit? Speaking in tongues, are they the ones who are part of the body of Christ? And Paul says no. The people who are part of the body of Christ are those who have confessed Jesus as Lord. And in that body, there's a variety of spiritual gifts. It is the one spirit who's behind them. All, not just tongues. This is Paul's point. 
And so this question becomes a really essential question for the Corinthian church when they want to say, well, who's actually part of the church? Who's actually part of the body of Christ? Do you have to speak in tongues to be a full-fledged member of the body of Christ? And Paul's point is no. You must confess Jesus as Lord. Paul counters that the Spirit gives more than just tongues. So tongues is not the infallible test of whether or not one is a member of the body of Christ. Verses 12 through the end of the chapter gives us the next section. And here Paul employs the analogy of the human body to make this point clear for us. This section opens with two verses that set up the analogy for us. Look with me at verse 12. For just as, just as the human body has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so in the same way it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. What's the human body like? Many different members, but one body. What's the body of Christ like? Many different members, many different gifts, but nevertheless one body. Why one body? Because all speak in tongues? No, one body because all possess the Spirit. And how do you know? Confession of Jesus as Lord. So Paul employs the analogy of the human body to make his point clear that it's the Spirit who brings the confession that unites us together The line around the church is not drawn by who possesses the gift of tongues. It's drawn by who confesses Jesus as Lord. That is how we know who is a part of Christ's body. And Paul tells us here that Christ's work is to plunge each of his followers into the Spirit so that now possessing the Spirit, they are united by the one Spirit. Baptism then moves us from outside the body. Spirit baptism moves us from outside the body into the body of Christ. And that is the work of Christ through the Spirit. And Paul develops this analogy now in verses 14 through 26. He tells us things about eyes and hands and ears and and feeling and smelling. He's talking to us about our human bodies, but he's giving all of that detail about our human bodies for the sake of making a point about the body of Christ. In other words, everything that he tells us about the human body is true of the body of Christ. His point isn't, well, the human body's got bones and blood. So that's the way the body... No, his point is, the human body has ears and eyes and smelling and feeling, and that's the way that it is in the body of Christ. So what he tells us here, he's speaking to us about the body of Christ, about the human body. But he is applying that then to the body of Christ, and he intends us to do that. And at verse 27 through 31, then, he comes back, picks up all the pieces, and sums up the answer to their question concerning spirituality and we'll get to that in just a little bit but let's first of all read verses 12 through 26 of first corinthians 12 for just as the body the human body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body jews or greeks slaves or free and all were made to drink of one spirit For the body does not consist of many members, uh, does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, 
where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would this be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. These verses speak to us about God's work to put the human body together. How has he made our human bodies? He's made our human bodies with eyes and ears. And that is Paul's point here. The analogy of the body shows that speaking in tongues is not the infallible test of authentic spirituality. Paul shows this by examining how God has constructed the human body and how the Spirit has constructed the body of Christ. And his main point here in these verses is that is what he says to us in verse 14. So verse 14 is giving us the main point that he's developing in the rest of the chapter. And that main point is this. The body does not consist of one member. It does not consist solely of tongue speakers. It consists of many gifts that are united by the Spirit into one body. And there are three things that Paul says to us here through this analogy that we're just going to develop very briefly here. First, look at verses 15 and 16 we see that the diversity of members does not mean any of them are less a part of the body than any other member. Paul envisions one member looking at another, maybe the foot looking at the hand, and concluding that because the foot is not a hand, the foot is not part of the body. That idea seems far-fetched to us. But that's exactly Paul's point. Why would the foot conclude that? It has no reason to conclude that. In the analogy then, speaking in tongues is not what makes one part of the body of Christ. Being part of the body means possessing the Spirit, but speaking in tongues is not the infallible test of who possesses the Spirit. There are people who possess other gifts, like foots, feet, feet, or hands. Not everybody is a tongue, is Paul's point. But these people are still a part of the body because of the work of the Spirit to put the body together as he wills. Secondly, look at verse 17. We see that the entire body is not composed of a single type of member. This point is the logical progression of what Paul has been saying to us in verses 15 and 16. Paul has just said that we cannot conclude we're not a part of the body because we're not a specific kind of member. And here he says that if you have to be an eye to be in the body, then you don't have a body. You have an eye. Because bodies have both eyes and hands. And so if you want to limit everything to one particular gift as a manifestation of the Spirit, 
who unites together the body of Christ, then you have one particular gift, not a body. Paul's point is that bodies have both eyes and ears. They are diverse. And so, in the analogy, no one gift dominates the church. Not everyone's an eye. Not every believer speaks in tongues. Tongues is a gift that only some believers possess, and it's the Spirit who determines which ones do and which ones don't. It is His will. And the third section here is verses 18 through 26. Look at verse 18. As it is, the way the body is, is God's own arrangement. Look at verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 24. God has so composed the body. That's the point of these verses. God put it together this way. And what is the effect of God's work to put together the body the way that he has? This section centers on the fact that God's the one who is the constructor and he is the one who apportions the gifts and so no member ought to look down on any other member. The eye cannot exclude the hand as unnecessary in the body. The tongue speaker cannot despise those who haven't spoken in tongues. There, is, there are no less spiritual people. I'm sorry, there, is, there are no... Someone is no less a spiritual person simply because he doesn't have a particular gift. Tongues makes no one more spiritual than any other gift. One is a spiritual, a possessor of the Spirit, and a bona fide member of Christ's body, not because he speaks in tongues or because he has the gift of apostle, but because he confesses Jesus as Lord. And the very fact that the Spirit, here's the main point now of this section, the very fact that the Spirit includes all of those different gifts should say something to us about the value of each one of the gifts. The fact that the spirit of the fact that God included little toes in my human body should say to me something about what God regards the little toe to be. Very necessary to my human body. The fact that the spirit of God included plenty of people who didn't speak in tongues should tell us something about God's estimation of those people and their gifts. The fact that he included them in the body means they are necessary to the body. And God then, by including certain gifts in the body, bestows greater honor upon those gifts than we might be willing to bestow upon them. We might look down upon someone as just having the gifts of help, gift of helps. And we might set the gift of the teacher higher than all of the rest. And Paul does say, pursue prophecy in chapter 14. It is the greatest of the gifts. But the fact that God includes them all means they are all necessary and we cannot look down upon any of them and say, I have no need of you. They are all necessary by the fact that God included them. And so I think now verses 27 through 31 will make a lot of sense as we read them. What is Paul saying here? He's applying this analogy now to the church. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually you are members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Is that the way you know who is under the influence of the Spirit? Are all prophets? Is every gift in the body the gift of teaching? Do all possess the gifts of healing, working miracles, speaking in tongues? Do all interpret? The answer to those questions is, No. A specific gift is not a manifestation of the definition of the Spirit's work. Rather, it is our confession of Jesus as Lord. 
And the fact that the Spirit united us together with many different gifts means that we need them all. What is the significance of this? The first is that no single gift defines the body. And this flies in the face of modern-day Pentecostalism. Modern Pentecostalism makes speaking in tongues the quintessential mark of spirituality. If you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not really a spiritual person. There's a second blessing to be pursued. Christians are taught to pray for this, to seek an experience of this. They're not satisfied until they have become what Pentecostalism teaches you have to be. Until you've had such an experience, you're not really a full-fledged Christian. It is tongues, then, that is taken as evidence that one has become a genuinely spiritual person, that one is actually a Christian and a member of Christ's body. And Paul pushes back really hard in this chapter against that idea. He asserts that confessing Jesus as Lord is the infallible test, not tongues. And he reminds us that tongues is only one of the gifts. The entire body is not an eye. Everyone is not an apostle. We are members of Christ's body because we possess the Spirit who leads us to the confession that Jesus is Lord. And he concludes chapter 14 with very sobering words in this regard. The one who does not recognize these things and submit themselves to them should not be recognized. In other words, his claim to authentic spiritual experiences is empty, Paul says. If a person regards tongues to be the sole measure of the definition of Christ's body, that person and his religious experiences are very suspect, Paul says. He is not to be recognized. The authentic test of spirituality is whether one has devoted himself in personal allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the authentic test. Now, I should interject here. At this point, I've just been working with the passage, not so much thinking about our context. I should interject here that both the New Testament and 2,000 years of church history now now teach that tongues have ceased. There was a first century phenomenon and there's no reason that the New Testament gives us that we ought to expect it today. In fact, the modern Pentecostal movement began about 100 years ago in defiance of the experience of Christians for the last 2,000 years. This has not been a thing until about 100 years ago. And so if Pentecostalism is authentic spirituality, then the Spirit of God has manifestly forsaken His people for the last 19 centuries. We have not really possessed the Spirit if that is what the Spirit looks like when He moves. But this also bears significance for us as considering the possibility of gathering together as a local church. Let's look back just briefly at Paul's analogy of the body for just a minute. I want us to focus on verses 21 through 26 once more. Notice what Paul says in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Why not? Look at verse 18. Because God has arranged the members in the body as he chose. So you can't say, I have no need of you when God put someone in the body. And this is a major theme in these verses. We saw this back up in verses 4 through 11. Just look at verse 11 again. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Look at verse 28. God has appointed in the church the gifts. Look at verse 24, middle of the verse. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor 
to those parts that we think lack it. Think for a minute about what Paul is saying here. Imagine with me the local church in Corinth. They gather every Sunday. They gather definably. They know who's there. have their membership. We've seen that they practice church membership. How many of them gathered? 50? 100? Let's say 50. 50 members of the church in Corinth. Why were there 50 and not 75 in Corinth on a given Sunday? Why were there 50 and not 25? Why did the body consist as it did? And the answer to that is God's work. He's the one who included every one of those members. And he composed the body as he did that every one of those members might give honor to every other member in that body. Regardless of their gift. And from this we need to understand, first of all, that the body that gathers regularly and definably every Lord's Day exists in the shape that it does because of God's will. Every member is there by God's appointment. God puts the body together just as he wills. It is the spirit who creates that unity. He adds the members and he gifts them as he will and they gather every Sunday. Why? Why do Christians gather together like this? In local churches. What is a local church? Why does it exist? Here's the first answer to that question. Because Christians need each other. That's the way that our salvation is shaped. Our salvation is union with Christ. It is union with God's people by the Spirit, therefore. Because we can't look at any of them and say, I don't need you. We do. The Spirit of God puts us together in the body of Christ to make that very point. And someone who says, I'll do just fine on my own, that person is not giving great enough weight to the work of the Spirit of God, to unite together believers. And so first thing we need to recognize here is that every believer needs the local church. This is the work of the Spirit of God. The second thing we need to notice then is that every member of Christ's body is a spiritual consumer. None of us can say we do not need the other members of Christ's body. We all are receivers of their ministry to us. We all are consumers of their ministry to us. No Christian can say he exists just fine as a Christian apart from other Christians. Question. How does Christ minister to his people? Answer. Through other Christians who are also a part of Christ's body. Question. How does the Spirit of God meet our needs? Answer, by uniting us to other Christians, and through them, he meets our needs. Christianity is not a religion that's just between you and God. Christianity is a religion that puts God's spirit within you to unite you inseparably with other members of the body of Christ in local churches because you need them. The very shape of our salvation teaches us to look outside of ourselves. God has set it up this way. That I should not look at myself for my righteousness. It's outside of me. I need someone else. And the way that God has set up our salvation, union with Christ, that teaches us that as Christians we need people outside of ourselves. We need other believers. Christianity is a team sport. It is always played alongside other Christians. You cannot play the game of Christianity. I don't mean a game, but you cannot play the game of Christianity without other Christians. 
Your Christianity will not be authentic Christianity if you do. The gathering of the church. Why do they gather? It's not just because it's a more efficient means of delivering sermons. You know, the pastor can preach to everybody all at once. And everybody can, he only has to say it once. He doesn't have to go around and visit each person and give them the word of God. No, that's not why the church gathers. Not merely to more efficiently deliver sermons to people. The local church is not like a petrol station where you go and put your tithe in and get your spiritual tank filled for the week. You go there and you gather with God's people because you need them. You need all of them. It's a place where you gather with other spiritual people whose influence and relationship you must have as a Christian. But these relationships are mutual, which means we are not only spiritual consumers, we are also spiritual, every one of us, spiritual producers. You need them. And they need you. And so there is a relationship, a mutual relationship in the body of Christ. No member of Christ's body can simply sit back and only take in. We have a responsibility to give out as well. And God bestows his honor upon every member of the body by including them in the body of Christ. God's action of including someone in a local church, sending them Compelling them to join that church, God's action bestows honor upon every one of them. No one can say, oh, we don't need her. She's fine to just sit on the back row. How many ministers are there then in Christ's body? There are as many ministers as there are members of Christ's body. Every one of them is a minister. No member and his gifts is unnecessary. If you're ever tempted to look at a little old lady who sits in the back row with her cane and her walker and think, we don't really need her here in the church, then you have not adequately reckoned with the work of the Spirit of God. You must never look at a pastor and think, I don't have anything to contribute to his walk with God. A pastor ought never think to himself, I'm okay all by myself. It's all these people out here who need all the spiritual ministry. This is the way the Spirit of God has set it up. And so we must humble ourselves before one another, bestow honor upon other members, humble ourselves before their ministry to us because God has put them in the body alongside of us for our spiritual success. The Spirit of God will add others to our, no our number here in Brisbane in time. Whomever he sends, we must submit ourselves to his work in sending them. Apparently we need them. We must acknowledge and honor the weakest among us. We must count them all needful to our spiritual health and life and growth. They need you. You need them. That's why we gather. Okay, so I'm needed in the body of Christ. I need them. They need me. How's this supposed to work? Sounds like a big job, being a member of a local church. There's something, some part I have to play. Surely there's got to be some job training for this, right? Someone to give me direction on how to go about this ministry, give shape to it. I have no idea how I can minister to that little old lady. I have no idea how I can minister to my pastor. How is this supposed to work? And that's what we'll take up next week. Is there any on-the-job training for church members? Who trains me to live in Christ's body? Who gives direction to all of this body ministry that the Spirit has put me in the body to accomplish? How is all of this supposed to work? And next week we will look at Ephesians 4, verses 
verses 11 through 12 to find out the answer to that. Let's pray together and then we'll see if there's any questions and we'll be dismissed. Lord God, you have done a marvelous thing in the way that you have shaped our salvation. You have put it together in such a way that we cannot rely upon ourselves. We must have your spirit. We must have Christ's righteousness. And we must have other saints. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to look at what the Spirit has done and to bestow honor upon the other members. I pray that you would give us submission and humility to submit ourselves to other members of Christ's body and their ministry to us as as vital, as needful to our own spiritual growth. And we ask these things that Christ's body might mature and grow and prosper, that he might be seen to be the head over all things for his glory. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Any questions? There's probably many things that could have been clearer, and it's not at all an offense to me if you want to 